What's the most you made on ASIN? Probably like 15 grand. Kind of sourcing tips here without giving away any alpha, obviously, but like kind of your, what made you the change for you to find a lot of stuff? Because I feel like you're pretty good at sourcing now compared to anyone I know, really. $9 an ounce. And when I was selling it, it was close to like 30 Wow. never hear that perspective i think people talk about amazon being saturated or amazon's not saturated it's like that that's like really not even the argument if it started sooner i think i would have hit million last year but as it was i hit like 800 and like see the big thing is you shouldn't have a max roi that drives me absolutely insane like if you buy a shoe for 20 dollars and there's one seller at 115 and you put an offer to sell it at 65 because that's 40 percent roi or like it should keep you off the platform. Like, take the buy box from 50 all the way up to, I think at the high, it was like 110. Example, say I could do six hours uh, a week and make 100K. But to make 120K, I think people want to put their own personal spin on things. That it takes the humility to just be like, I know nothing. I, I'm more on it this, like, tell me everything you know and I'll do it all and then I'll filter the stuff that I like best, you know? Yeah, see, it's where I get lost. You are going to ask me about it. <laughs> I wouldn't be here if I knew that was What's up, everybody? No fancy intro. This is Rick. He came to me at about 20K in sales February of last year. Did about 45K profit on Amazon in December. He runs a consulting company by himself, and he has some really cool stories on trading stock back in his 20s. And really, the whole reason I wanted to have him on today was kind of to compare that back to what he originally did with the stocks and how much I think it's relatively similar today, especially because he talked about the margin getting squeezed and how margin kind of gets squeezed in this business from certain things. But we'll get into that kind of stuff. A bunch of cool stuff coming. But how are you doing today, Rick? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on, guys. Yeah, thanks for being here. For sure. Do you want to start with the first question, John, or me? You start with it. Yeah, so first, I guess give us a little story about um, – what kind of got you into Amazon in general and then uh, how you end up meeting me? Sure. So um, if I go through kind of career-wise, the, the, the Amazon comes into that. So I'll start like um, probably in 2000 or 2001, I started trading uh, stocks. I had some buddies who were in New York who were just day trading. And this was right after the tech bubble. So like in the 1990s, uh, the market was kind of going crazy. And then it was the first time you could trade online. Um, and so it was like a big opportunity that technology enabled this new windfall, kind of similar to Amazon. Um, and so the first guys in were making loot. So I started doing that in 01. I moved to New York um, with a $500 deposit check for my account and a bag of clothes and a container that would cook ramen. Because um, that's what I had. And so uh, I moved in with my two buddies. They had a railroad apartment, which if you know, you walk in, there's a common room with a couch and the kitchen. And then on either side, there are bedrooms that have windows, but the common room doesn't have a window. And so I slept on the couch in there for the first couple months. Um, they said, don't expect to make money for a year. I made money the first month and every month after that for about nine years, I did it. Um, and... Uh, Around 2009, so post-financial crisis, 2008 was crazy to trade. I mean, it was that 100-year flood of like, it was basically a crash, you know, stock market crash. Um, and then, so I kind of diversified. I started another business, tried a few things, and I have the business that I have now, 
Um, I started in like 2010 and I kept going with that one. That one's been profitable. Um, and that's what I mostly do. So Amazon's kind of been like a nights and weekends type thing. Um, but basically, so in 2008, if, if you watched the market up close, it was terrifying. Like stocks were just like Citigroup or Citibank or whatever went from $50 to a dollar. And like Bear Stearns went from $80 on a Sunday night to $2 on Monday morning. Like things just blew up completely. And like it was insane. And so I thought the whole thing was going to collapse. Like I thought we were going back to like Mad Max. So I went out and bought a couple giant bags of silver coins. And I thought I would need that for like barter or whatever. <laughs> so I guess I was wrong. Uh, or maybe just early, you know. Still could happen, I guess. But so I kind of forgot about it. And in 2021, we're looking to move. We're trying to buy a bigger house. And so we need to sort of get all the liquid cash we can together. And I go to my storage unit and I see these giant bags of silver coins. And I'm like, dang, like we kind of need a house more than we need like insurance against Armageddon. So like I should probably go sell these. So I go to this broker and I'm like, how much will you give me for the silver? And he gives me a quote. And I'm like, uh, I was like, if I, if I go and sell these on eBay, I can actually get like 25K more than that. It's like, what's up? And he's like, yeah, but then you got to go sell it on eBay. And I was like, all right. So I thought about it for a couple of days and I was like, you know, I don't golf. I don't really party. Like I could find a couple hours a week to like do this. And worst case scenario, it doesn't work. I'll just take it back to him, you know, and take the bad price. So I started selling it on eBay. And I think without that, I never would have gotten to Amazon because like, like, I didn't know the difference between UPS and USPS. Like, what, you know, what do you know about e-com if you're just, if you're not in it? And so I started selling the silver, it's going. And then nine months later, I run out of silver. And I'm like, all right, what do I do now? Like, that was good money while it lasted. And so I dabbled with the idea of like trying to buy it wholesale and flip it, but there's just no velocity to it. And watching eBay videos, I had started watching Amazon videos because there's a lot of like that crossover. Mm. And eventually I watched enough where I was like, I don't really think there's a difference between buying 20 bucks of silver, selling it for 40 and keeping eight after commissions and buying a $20 Adidas shirt from uh, Target, selling it for 40 and keeping eight. Like it's kind of the same game. Uh, so yeah, I opened an Amazon account and started from there. So how much did you pay for this silver? And then how much did you end up getting for it? And then like, what was the profit? I think I bought it when silver was like $9 an ounce. And when I was selling it, it was close to like 30. An ounce. Wow. Not bad. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Like that's the one thing I did buy it below in 2008. Like everything cratered. So probably should have bought a house. But... <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. It's a cooler story though to have bags of silver. Yeah, that is. I, I don't even think I've heard that story. I didn't know you started with the silver. I remember you told me that one time. But I didn't know that's how you got into the whole thing. That's pretty cool. Yeah. There's actually um, uh, the My First Million guys interviewed Tony Robbins, and he's coming out with a book on money. And he said like there was some guy he interviewed who bought as many nickels as he could because it's something like a nickel costs like ten cents to make. It only costs five. I don't know what the math is, but he's like, eventually, like, this is the safest investment ever. And I'm just going to hold on. They bought like 20 million nickels or something crazy. 
Yeah, I think it's like there's nine there's nine cents worth of nickel metal. In yeah, nickel. It. Yeah, we had a couple bags of nickels in the basement too. I think my wife took them back to the uh, the bank one day. <laughs> so one interesting thing with the, from that stock stuff that I I found like I remember you telling me this story. I was so intrigued. You, we were on some kind of discussion about margin in general, and you said that some margin play happened in the stock market where a bunch of people lost a bunch of money in one day. I can't, can you tell that kind of story if you remember what I'm talking about there? It was like every year somebody would do something and it didn't work out like that again. We'd make a bunch of money in one day. Yeah, yeah, and then it stopped one year or something. Yeah, yeah. So, so going back to the beginning, well, in general, when you talk about stocks, most of the stuff – most of the action happens either on the open or the close of the market at 9.30 or 4. You really just want to trade the first and the last hour because that's when all the volume is there. Like in the middle of the day, there's not enough volume for it to make sense to be actively trading for the most part. And so what happens is um, these guys get orders. Um, you know, a broker gets a client. And he's like, I need to sell 100,000 shares of the stock. And... Today, what they can do is they feed it into a machine and the machine sells like 100 shares every couple minutes. And maybe they even use AI to get the best pricing. But back then it was just people and like a few people on computers. So like it wasn't as uh, efficient. And so a lot of times what they would do is they'd be like, all right, the, the human, the, the broker would sell like a thousand shares every so often. And then he'd be like, all right, it's almost the close. I'm just going to dump the rest. I got to sell the rest of this 50,000 on the close. And obviously, if you have to sell a lot at once, you're not going to get the same price, right? It's like the same thing with any sort of inventory purchase. Like if I'm going to take on more risk of more shares or stock or whatever, like you got to give me a discount. And so when they would go to flood the market with a ton of stock in one time, the price would gap down because, right, let's say the stock's trading 50 and the guy's like, look, I need to sell like, a whole hour's worth of inventory. What will you give me? And it's like, oh, not forty nine ninety. Like you, you got to give me because how am I going to dump that stock out once you sell it to me? Like it's going to take longer for me to distribute that out eventually. So I'll pay you forty nine, and maybe somebody says forty nine ten. So they aggregate those orders, and the price gaps down. But that gap down is artificial. It's only because that one guy had to blow out of shares. The next morning, it should open back up where it was, right? Ah, uh, so he makes the 90 cents. Yeah. Hopefully later on or even more. Right. Or, well, sometimes what happens is the guy will advertise. So what used to happen is they would advertise, look, I got 50,000 to sell on the close. And what we would all do is just start selling right away and then buy it back on the close. And we would make the, you know, we would make whatever the gap was. Got it. Um, and so there was one day a year where all the indices had to rebalance. And it still happens, but it's not as instantaneously profitable. But basically what would happen is, um, you know, you have the S&P 500 and the S&P mid-cap 400 and all these. Well, as stocks grow and shrink, they move in and out of the indices. And all the index funds that track the indices have to rebalance their portfolios. And they don't know how much to rebalance until like the day of almost. And so at the, at the close, sometimes they have to either buy or sell like a week's worth of stock in 10 minutes or whatever. And so say the stock trades like a million shares a day. This one day you had on the close, somebody needed to buy 3 million shares. And like, 
it didn't matter. You can't get that volume without gapping it up like three points to gather enough people who want to sell it. So this one day it happened. Um, I should say two years before it happened, and we were all set up for it, and my computer crashed. And everybody on the desk made 50, 80K on the close. And I made zero. Oh, God. <laughs> so my phone didn't last the rest of the day. Um, but uh, that was annoying. So then, so then the next year, it actually didn't really work either. And we're like, ah, oh, this, this sucks. Like the gaps weren't that much. People had kind of front run. And we're like, ah, oh, maybe the trade's over. So the next year, something happened with the calendar where there were a couple things that were happening that day. It wasn't just this rebalance. It was like another. And we were like, oh, my gosh, this could be good. And so we size up. We do the thing. And it, everything gaps. It went nuts. And got, uh, everybody on the desk made six figures in five minutes. One guy on the, on the other office made over a million on the close. Wow. I think he must. So you size up with your shares. I think he must have bought 40 million worth of stock or something just for those 10 minutes and then flipped it at 401 or whatever. So it's tremendous risk. I mean, if something had, hap had happened in that time period, I mean, he would have been obliterated. But it's, it was short enough of a time that like they were willing to loan the money and the odds were there to take the trade. So, And then the next year, it went back to almost nothing. And you can still play it in a way, but that instantaneous close where you get the gap, like all the computers have kind of eaten up that edge. And like, it's mm. kind of just a dud. Yeah, that's well, interesting. What's the most you ever made on one of those? Or can you say? It was that day. It was six figures, honestly. Jeez. In one uh, trade. That's crazy. I guess uh, when when you were like getting out of it, what got you? What was the moment? I think you may have told me this before. What's the moment like you had to leave, or did the firm shut down? You were with the firm, right? Oh, trading. Yeah, yeah. Um. So after the financial, so um, one thing too similar to trading in Amazon is when you're operating as an independent uh, entity with no lobby, none of the rule changes will be good for you. Like there's always somebody bribing whoever's in charge to make things better for them. And if you're just out on your own, like it'll never be good when these changes come. And so basically people were lobbying exchanges to change this rule, change that rule. And eventually they changed one in 2009 that was just like catastrophic. Um, and I saw mm. the margins just dipping and I was like, this is not going to be worth my time in like three years. Like, um, it would be like similar if Nike went to Amazon. It's like no one can sell Nike anymore. Like it yeah. sucks for all the sellers, and like we really have nothing we could do about it. And Amazon's probably be like, "Oh well, we don't sell it anyway, so who cares?" Exactly. Yeah. He he. I think you've said that exact same thing to me before. <laughs> I think Rick has told me that before. Like, what happens if they just shut down like a certain <laughs> brand? It's like, yes, I guess that's the to tie all this in together. But what do you kind of see out of the the Amazon thing? I guess paying attention to last year and us talking. Do you see some similarities with that kind of stuff happening? Because I know there's tons of rule changes all the time. There's tons of different crackdowns on different things. How, how how similar does it play into that type of thing? I think it's super similar. I think um, I think margins will just shrink. I mean, they can't go negative, uh, and they probably can't go to zero. But they're going to keep drifting lower, I would say. And you'll just weed out different people who say, this isn't worth my time. I'm going to go somewhere else. But there's always going to be some 19-year-old kid 
who doesn't have a high cost of living who's going to be like, oh my gosh, six, 6% margins on a million in sales? Sign me up, you know? Mm. Whereas like, I'm going to be like, yeah, take it. I'm done. Like, I, that's not worth my risk or my time, maybe. And you never hear that perspective. I think people talk about Amazon being saturated or Amazon's not saturated. It's like that. That's like really not even the argument. It's just that we're playing an arbitrage play and it's getting squeezed because that's what happens when you bring a ton of people into the arbitrage market and then inflation happens as well. So the cost of goods go up in general. It's like that's kind of – I think that's what's happening. It's not that – it's saturated or not. It's not as simple and black and white as that. It's just, it's going to get squeezed and the margins have gone down. I mean, I remember running like a 20% margin business, not knowing what I was doing back in 2020. I mean, that's just like the nature of how it goes. So yeah, I find that kind of interesting. Um, to what, I guess, what would you say is the optimal strategy for people? If they, if you had to give like an optimal strategy for someone to diversify their risk and squeeze the most margin out of it, and it could be, you know, what I've taught you as well, but like, what do you think's the, you know, the biggest the biggest thing to diversify the risk. I mean, I think like if you have a day job, you don't mind. And especially if it pays your health insurance, like don't quit, like mm. do this as much as you can nights and weekends, but like don't reorient your whole life around Amazon and plan out for 10 years of this because it might only last seven or five or three. You know what I mean? Like, um, like don't put all your eggs in this basket, but like keep buying stuff, keep, getting better at it you know there's still a lot of meat on the bone but like um you know you wouldn't want to have all your risk in there and same thing with like the money you've made like don't 100 percent reinvest and even some of the guys on our box have talked about that some of those big guys like they'll get yeah. asked like what happens if this all shuts down tomorrow and i think the one guy said um you know that's fine because i only have this small percent of what i've made in the whole game still there and I've already mentally dealt with the possibility that that's gone. And so I think you kind of have to walk yourself through that scenario. Like what if all my inventory, not even like a deactivation or something, but what if it all just started like tanking hard and you're, you know, you're not, you're break even or losing on your inventory. Like what would you do? And if that's going to be catastrophic for you, like you need to reorient your uh, finances and your time. That's a really good point because, yeah, I actually listened to their last call when I was doing something and they're like someone was just like a lot of the questions were like, oh, like, how should I leverage or like how many credit cards should I open? And they're like, no, like you have to pay down the credit cards. Like, I think I forgot who it was, but they were just like, yeah, I pay them down. Like I take daily payouts and usually I will pay down the credit card, even though like the bank balance goes down, like I don't want a ton of risk and be like totally lopsided um should something happen and it is like risky like i it, it's just crazy to think like how much money like some of the q4 payouts i got like to think i let it go that long i should have just been like taking it every day because you never know at least like if you take it every day and then something happens at least you have that cash out and you could like figure out what to do with the inventory later but I've always, from the beginning, since I do this, like, kind of full-time, I have some other stuff going on, I take out every month. Like, I take out a certain amount, like, just because I don't, it doesn't make any sense to leave it all in there. So I take out what I need. Every month is the same amount. And then if there's extra, I usually just leave it in there and then just kind of go base by base. But, yeah, I think, like, leverage, I think, is a really... 
you probably know just from like stock it could be really easy to think you're making money and then like some trader does something stupid and then you lose all your money and then it closes and you're like shit yeah yeah it's almost like I think looking at Amazon in general, just shifting your mind to make it kind of like an investment vehicle instead of a business. Like this whole Chad scaling thing that everybody talks about, I'm like that's kind of like the worst way ever to look at this because it's really weird to dump in tons of capital and tons of debt into something with zero equity. Now that, that seems backwards. If you look at Amazon almost like an investment vehicle, a bit different than if you look at it as, you know, this is my ticket to freedom. I think that would keep a lot of people, a lot of more people safe too, and and collect more money because you just are playing with less risk if you look at it that way. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And like, yeah, scared money don't make money. Like if you quit school or your job to do this, like it's a, it's a whole different game. And I don't think people appreciate that like psychologically because like imagine the days when sales aren't great and this is mm -hmm. like, you know, all you have is like, for me, that would be that would be like too much stress, you know. Yeah, that's yeah. a hard thing too. It's like you could say you control it, but like really, if you needed to make money, your only move would be to lower it, lower your prices, yep. or advertise. It's essentially the same difference. You're just taking less profit. Yep, it's so funny how the similarities with this and like investing really is. And I'd never even thought about it like that until I met you, because I mainly what it was keep a charts, just going over keep a charts and recognizing patterns and. The one thing you said to me once, just placing things in little buckets, like where you can see a keep a chart and just immediately know what bucket it's in, if it's a good bucket or a bad bucket. The same type of thing is like investing in a stock chart and things like that. So yeah, it's very, very similar, I guess, in that way. So what does your Amazon business look like? And kind of do you have VAs or how much, or you could talk about it or as little as much as you want? Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, it's just me. I have no VAs. I do. I prep it all myself. I have some help with my family. Um, nice. But I signed up for a prep center last year. I sent them a couple shipments. It's just hard with how I do things to um, to really trust it to that. Just I like to have control over when I send stuff in and like yeah. um, just the speed. And I know Drew, we you know we would buy a lot of the same stuff, and my stuff would get uh, checked in, or my stuff would sell before yours was even checked in. Sometimes constantly, like. Yeah, during Q4, like stuff would come and I'd prep it and ship it out that afternoon or that night. And I think that was an edge I had, um, you know, that really helped. But uh, yeah, so it's just me. And that's, I guess that's what I'm trying to figure out now. I'm kind of in an intermediate stage of like, do I keep it in here? Do I grow it? Um, and in terms of last year, the numbers, I mean, I started with Drew in yeah, February. So the buys we did didn't start till March. If we'd started sooner, I think I would have hit a million last year but as it was i hit like 800 at like 16 percent net profits um, wow that's awesome when you say that when people are listening to this that is not like oh i think i made 15 or 16 percent you were like meticulous about the numbers <laughs> to a point where you'd ask me i'm like dude i don't pay that much attention but you're like spot on with everything and underestimating usually what your stuff is right yeah yeah and so but but like, if I'd known those were the margins, I don't think I ever would have started. Like the videos I saw in the beginning, everybody was talking about 40% ROI and this and that. And it took me a little to realize ROI is not margin. Why would you ever talk about ROI? Like the numbers you look at are your sales. You apply margins to sales, not ROI. It makes, <laughs> it makes no sense unless you're selling a course, I guess. 
Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think – well, I mean, I don't think people know today that that's – I see people on Twitter saying they're running a 40% ROI, and I'm like – or running like a 15% ROI or like a whatever, 30% margin. I'm like, dude, if you're getting a 30% margin, that means that you're selling for like 80% ROI. There's no shot you're doing that. Like, yeah, I mean, maybe on paper, but then when you account like lost inventory, return, like all that kind of stuff, like that number dwindles so bad. Like if I looked at my inventory labs, my account just sent like the final numbers for the year. And it's just like, wow, like those inventory lab numbers do not match at all. Like the December one was off by almost, I think it was like eight grand. It was eight grand less than what inventory lab was saying. I don't put my expenses into inventory lab. So like that makes more sense, but it was just like, wow, like it was nowhere close to what it was predicting. And especially at, like in December, when you look at that number, it was so much higher, but then once it factors in returns and kind of all that other stuff and those final payouts, um, then it's like, oh, okay, like this is the real number. Yeah. It, it's like a whole psyop, really. The whole ROI, the like the whole marketing angle of turning your inventory over thirty percent per month or every forty five days is just like complete bullshit. Like that is just not even close to what what it is. If it was like that, like if if that was actually the case, we would all be millionaires like all the time because your 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 money would compound so fast. But clearly, it doesn't really happen like that. And that whole angle is just weird to me because it's just not the reality. But it does sell well, so I get that part of it. Yeah, so your strategy with stuff, I don't you go super wide on your stuff, like in general. I don't think you're very deep on anything. So what what's kind of your reason for that? Was it I don't know if I told you necessarily to do that or not, but what what's why have you kind of taken that route instead of going more deep on stuff? Um, I guess lack of confidence initially. But also I think something people don't talk about is there is some advantage to being small and being nimble. Like if you have one or two units of an item. Let's say it's selling for 100 and there's 10 other sellers. So you're not really getting rotation maybe. You could drop it to 90 or 85, blow out your unit. You're still profitable probably, and then you move on. If you've got 20 of those, you can't drop it to 90 or 85. Even if you make a sale, you just tank your own. Like you got to wait it out. Mm. And no matter what, you're still, if you have more stock than other sellers, you're going to be on that listing longer than they are. So you like need to care about the price of the listing. You can't be as aggressive and you might get stuck. And that was my biggest thing. I didn't want to get stuck with inventory. Um, obviously, it hurt me on the good buys to not have as much stock. But from my you know, mental framework, that makes sense for me to not because the, the pain of getting stuck in things and like, you know, having to take pay the um, storage fees and all that stuff like that just didn't make sense to me. Yeah, I'm stuck on some stuff right now where it's like, oh, it was so good. And then, yeah, I think, too, it's like you just can't predict what's going to happen. Just kind of like, look at, like, if you're trading, like, Budweiser, everything's going great. And then, like, that marketing thing happens, like, it's out of your control. Like, that could have been your best holding, but it's just like, well, didn't see that happening. And, like, some of the stuff I was on, like, everyone kind of, like, caught on and then, Amazon lost a bunch of it, got caught in transfer, and now it's just like slowly trickling out. But at this point, I'm just going to sit on it because it is good margin. It's going to take me longer to sell. So it doesn't make sense for me to like take a loss on it. I'll just keep it and let it sell out in the next month or two. 
Yeah, and a lot, I think a lot of people hold on to stuff for six months, a year. I mean, I've done this with stuff. It's like it'll eventually recover. That's what everybody says. All these listings, you can go back and look at your old listings and they'll recover. That's not true either. You know, a lot of times that stuff never recovers. That The price goes down and then that's the new standard until everyone sells out, which likely will never happen. Until there's because, like two sellers on it and then yeah. everyone else catches on again. And even then, everybody's got a repricer. So it's not like the price is going to jump up unless everybody's using seller snap. There's no way that, you know, the price jumps up to some crazy amount and then both sellers stick there. So yeah, blowing out your inventory quick. I've always said to do that. It's like after you get to a certain point, you just got to emotionally detach yourself and just get rid of the stuff. Because if any, you're losing a hundred percent of your money. If you don't, you let it sit there for a year, you're out like that. That's money you don't have in your bank account. So it's better just to lose 10, 15, 20% or whatever, and then just get the money back at least. And I also think I was looking at something today. I actually posted on Instagram a reel. And it was like the keep a chart. It was like it normally sold for like thirty two. When there was like five sellers on it, it drops to two. It jumps to forty five. It stayed there for like sixty days. There's only two sellers. Eight come on, nine come on, ten come on. Now it's coming all the way down. There's like fifty sellers on it now, and the most amount of sellers has ever been on it was like twenty. So everyone's probably in their head, they see it like, oh, it's been like 45 for the last two months, like until everyone comes on. And then they're like, oh, there's only been a max 20 people on here historically. But now that here we are at like 54 and you just see that thing like it will be under 32, like the lowest price it's ever sold for. It'll probably be in the 28s in the next, I don't know, week, two weeks. Yeah. So. Another thing, what about your, uh, I know you're talking about, you are into the whole uh, people marketing this a weird way. What do you shoot for with the ROI? Like if you had to set a standard, and I know I gave you a play a while ago where you were making like a dollar profit or something. And then I think you you probably aren't doing that anymore, I would say. And, and you did stick with it though. So what was your mindset behind, okay, this play's good enough to stick with it? You know, the whole general rule of what you're looking for when you're sourcing. Okay. Um I mean, it's shoes and clothing, so probably like 60, 80, 100% ROI probably. Yeah, which is high from what people say. Well, like after the, you know, it costs two bucks a shoe to ship them in sometimes, or a dollar or two to ship them in. The storage fees add up on them. I mean, once you do like inventory lab, or I do seller board actually, and you see all those storage fees too, like that's important to look at because that's mm. every month it's sitting there, that's draining your profits too. Um, so yeah, I look at like 60, 80 plus ROI. I also mostly look at like the dollar amount too. Like it's gotta be at least 15, 20, 25 bucks since I'm prepping it myself. Um, you know, that's a big factor, but the, the price one, I think important thing is the price you pay only matters, uh, up until the point where you click buy the item. After that, the price you pay, makes no, it doesn't matter at all. The market is what tells you what it's worth. And I think people mess that up all the time. And um, the, the big thing is you shouldn't have a max ROI. That drives me absolutely insane. Like if you buy a shoe for $20 and there's one seller at 115 and you put an offer to sell it at 65 because that's 40% ROI or whatever, like it should kick you off the platform. Like that's <laughs> the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Like match 115 or go 105 but like why would you artificially cut your winners because that's the number one rule in trading is let your winners ride cut your losers it does not matter what you paid for it you don't know it's not a hundred dollar shoe who cares throw it out there for a week the, the clock hasn't even started on your storage fees like why would you 
do that. And I think people see these tweets and videos where they're like, if you turn over your inventory every seven days, you can live with a 4% margin. Look how it grows. And it's like, yeah, I'm a human. Like I need to live my life. I'm not going to like prep, you know, 20 hours a day. Like I want a real margin. Like what, mm. what are you doing? And, um, and it works the flip too. So like, say you buy an item and you're trying to sell it, call it the same item. Let's say, say you buy it for 40 and you're trying to sell a hundred. And when you go, there's, there's, when you bought it, there was one guy at a hundred. By the time it gets checked in, there's two sellers with 10,000 reviews each, and they're both offering it at 65, and they both have like nine months worth of stock. Guess what? That's now a $65 shoe. Like, it doesn't matter what you paid. It doesn't matter. No. I wouldn't even look back at my buy cost. I know to price it now, maybe at 65, maybe I try to pull them up to 80. See, maybe, you know, you can give them a week to, to bring their price up. Maybe that was just their initial mistake. But if they're sitting there for days and weeks at that price, that's the price. And that's what you have to compete with. And I think people do the flip. The one where there's no offers, they sell for their 40% ROI. And yeah. the one that they should be dumping for even, they try to hold for 40% ROI. And you lose on both ends. Like, it's just not good strategy. There were a couple of things this Q4 that I was selling during the year. Let's just say it was like $50 or whatever. And I shared it with a friend. And I was looking at the Kiba chart and I had a max price set because like sometimes it will get like a pricing error. And then sometimes those are really hard to get the buy box back if you go like way too high. And he was getting 80. And I was like, are you, I texted him. I was like, are you really getting 80? He's like, yeah, we were able to take the buy box from 50 all the way up to, I think at the high, it was like 110. There's only three of us on the listing. And someone was sticking at 60. Like, what the hell is this bozo doing? Like, bring it up. And we were able to do that until about like 10 people got on the listing. And then it was hard to get in stock. But we brought it. We were consistently getting, I think, 89. And every once in a while, we could get a sale. I think for like 110 was like the high. And I was just like, wow. Like, I would just had no idea. I think he actually said it by mistake. And it, his repraiser took it up there. And then we kind of figured it out that way because it was something that was so ridiculous. We were paying, I don't know, like $20 for it or something. It made no sense to like think the price at that high and keep ahead nothing on it to suggest it would even get that high. But I mean, who knows? It was was crazy. I guess uh, another thing, um, what do you think took you from the, the 20K in sales in February to doing like, well, I think it was 50k nearly in profit in December, which is like ridiculous if you really think about how much margin you probably have in the 20k, and then you probably had a higher margin on the 140 because you kept such a good track of everything. But what's the big difference, I guess? There, I think a lot of it's confidence. Like when you have, you know, we did the coaching sessions, the mentorship. Like when you have confidence in what you're buying, it helps you buy more and to be more aggressive. But also like. The experimentation, like seeing enough keeper charts and enough um, of a product, it gives you more, um, you can buy more. Like like people say, it's not all in the keeper and the seller ramp. Like things happen that doesn't always get tracked. And like mm. um, once you see that a few times, you can use those patterns and sort of size up more into things that you think are worthwhile. If that yeah. makes sense. 
Yeah, I think that's kind of like my uh, secret type of stuff. It's like people are like, well, that data's not there. And I'm like, I don't care. Like that's not, you'll if you buy it, you'll see different data, which I think a lot of people don't know, whether it's about selling against Amazon or buy box percentages in general. A lot of the times that stuff, I don't know why that doesn't get tracked specifically, but it's almost like yeah. I hear people give advice and I'm like, man, if you just took the opposite advice of everything that person said, you could probably run a pretty profitable business. But I don't, I, I guess if you don't- I think Amazon actually hides the data because that item we were, I was just talking about in Q4, it never showed the spikes until like into a hundred. I think it's like, not that I, you know how they get accused of like price gouging. I don't think they want like Keepa to have the data where someone could go and be like, oh, well, see, you got it up here. Like someone literally have to have a screenshot at that moment of getting it or whatever. So I, I don't know. That could be a total conspiracy. That would be my thought on that. Yeah, no, I definitely see that. Like that stuff happens. I don't know. I don't know why it doesn't, what doesn't get like register in the back end, I guess. What's one well, thing or a couple of things you do to kind of, because I think a lot of people struggle with this is like keep track of your numbers like so well or kind of have that really dialed in and kind of what are you looking at daily monthly to know that you really are hitting these metrics and like your profits your profit i mean i got a bookkeeper um earlier this year i've been fighting that for a while i mean that's a big expense it is a month but i think once you hit a certain level you got to do that and so seeing that opens your eyes too to see all the fixed expenses finally come in because I don't put those in the seller board either. Um, but I think that was probably the biggest thing. I mean, I keep Excel sheets with everything else. Um, that's probably all I do there. Pay that. attention. To, you pay attention to the shipments a lot, though. I remember you always asking me stuff about like, <laughs> what about what happened here? Well, what should I do about this? And I'm usually just like, ignore it, man. There's nothing you can do. But yeah, you. you really just keeping track of kind of everything that's happening all the time, which is a big RBOPS type of thing of like where it's at in the mm -hmm. whole thing and make sure it didn't get lost, that type of thing. And you're hands-on with your inventory. So I'm sure that's a little bit easier. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, they've been better about checking stuff in. I remember last year I was doing like once a week, I'd have to submit a bunch of receipts to claim stuff, but it's only been like maybe once every two months in the last couple months. So there hasn't been as much stuff go missing. Um, yeah, I just had a shipment that everything is missing right now. It's like 5K worth of stuff. So it's never fun. Yeah, but I guess that's another part of the, the low margin stuff is you like literally can't afford that stuff to happen because that's your, yeah. your property going out the window. I've really realized that. I mean, I've lost some big shipments too. And then if you go wide on your stuff, you're submitting like 25 receipts or whatever it is. And then it's, they're not even really invoices. They're just receipts and they, yeah, you have to have like a meticulous system if you're scaling up. I, I really don't know. Maybe it's just my inexperience with running like a company, but how these guys do millions of dollars a month and then keep track of all that stuff, that blows my mind because that they have to be having the product problems we have times like 40, you know. That was always one of my biggest things, I which I stopped doing. I remember when I was buying a lot of apparel from Kohl's, I, like it would go out of stock and it'd be like, oh, like one came in stock and I just add one to the order and it's all like ones, twos, threes, four. And then like when it came time when they lost them or whatever to like reconcile that and submit all the invoices where like Amazon doesn't understand. It's like, oh, it's just this ace and that's missing. It's like a one. And then it's another invoice at three. I was like, never again. 
Like it has to be like a straight up 10 or like a certain number that makes sense. I thought I was like, oh, I'm getting this. And, and then it was just turned out to be such a nightmare when it came to reconciling that stuff. Cause like to walk them through being like, Hey, like it's just this one. It's just this one. It's so annoying. So I've always tried to do that or check out just one ASIN per invoice. This way, if it does happen, it's like, oh, here it is. This is everything on it. Because I've never had issues with that. Where it's like, nope, like I ordered 50 of them. This is where it came from. That's it. But it's like when other stuff is on that receipt, I think that's when it gets all screwed up and they can't like wrap their head around it for some reason. I'm glad you brought up the Coles thing. So I, I don't know if you watched our episode. Where we talked. Did you see where we talked about the Coles situation? Have you? Yeah. Have you- yeah, so so you were the person I was talking about for anybody that's watched both those things. And uh, to preface, Rick's also very smart and very good at math. And I would like to think I am too. And we sat here like 12-year-olds for a, probably an hour one day, and we brought somebody else into the call. They probably confused us more. We were looking at Cole's financial numbers. We were looking at a bunch of different stuff that day. But would you think – you think, was I spot on with what I was saying there? Did you – because I think you had a little bit of a different interpretation of how you can kind of do it, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of ways you can interpret it. And the, the net money is always the same. It's just a matter of when you apply it and where you apply it. But I don't know. Some people have really complicated spreadsheets, like, to try to figure it out. I just, yeah. Yeah, it's weird to me. And it's like, where's your profit? That was the whole thing. Of like, is it in your Coles cash? Is that where your profit's at? Because <laughs> that seems a little weird if that's the case. Yeah, that's one way to look at it, is to be, is to be like, um, yeah, all the profits in Coles cash, I buy stuff with that at zero cost, right? That's, their, that's part of the game. So yeah. if you lose that, you lose all your profit. Yeah. And then how do you ever cash out, right? You just buy stuff for your house, right? I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, what else you got, John? Um. So do you do you use Kohl's Cash then, or or no? Uh less than I used to. Okay. Um, used no, to I'm be- just interested to see how you would apply it, or are you just taking like using it as a bonus. I would just apply it against all the stuff I bought, um, like because you get twenty percent plus five percent, so that's twenty five percent. I would just apply a twenty percent discount to everything. Including the stuff I didn't buy with Kohl's cash. Oh, okay, got it. You take the extra five from the other pieces and apply it over. Yeah, see, it's where I get lost. You were going to ask me about that. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't be here if I knew that was coming. No, no, no. <laughs> I mean, you don't do it a lot, anyways, because I don't really preach it, obviously, at all. I'm like, yeah. this is very complicated. And it doesn't really make a difference if people know it or not, because it's just hard to understand, I think. Unless you just they're shooting whatever, but I've yeah, definitely so, lost a lot of cool cash, so I kind of just stopped. Yeah. So I guess another thing, what what's kind of that your end game for the Amazon thing? I think we've talked about this a little bit, but like, what's the what do you think the exit plan is for all of it? And when do you think it's like not worth it for you anymore? Or when are you going to scale it up? What's the goal kind of for the future? Yeah, that's where I'm now trying to figure that out. So, so like I said, last year was 800k, 16% margin. The thing is, if I did, if I tried to double it, the next 800k, I can't prep myself. I got to sell and send it to a prep mm. center. So that knocks it down to maybe, assuming I can find just as profitable stuff, it's 12% now, plus whatever headaches are coming. 
I'm trying to figure out if it makes sense. I think I, I think what I'll probably do is just try to coast where I am and see how few hours I can put into it to make the same amount. Um, Cause I think people, you know, once you do the initial piece and you scale up and everything, I think people need to spend more time like figuring out where they want it to be and what really makes sense. So like as a cartoonish example, Say I could do six hours uh, a week and make 100K. But to make 120K, I would need to do 40 hours a week. Like that mm. obviously makes no sense. But like, mm. I feel like a lot of people make leaps like that just because they're trying to grow. I need to get bigger. But it's like, you got to grow smart. And I mean, I did this with my other business too. And this is probably where everybody starts with business if you ask them their goal. It's like to make as much money as you can, right? Mm. Especially if you're, 19 or whatever jumping on amazon like you just want to make uh, as much as you can but you, once you start analyzing you know the whole 80 20 rule comes in you realize like not all the dollars are the same ease of of making and like some of it probably doesn't make sense so i remember and again it's why you should get a bookkeeper as soon as you can and like really drill into the numbers because with my other business i scaled it crazy one year and i was like let's just and part of it's just a game right like mm. It's a video game. You want to see how high you can get your high score. But I looked at the numbers at the end of the year and all the new business I had added and all the extra work it took to get that, what I made compared to like what I would have made with half the effort, it was like not that much more. And I was like, this makes no sense. Like these are hard dollars to make. They're a headache. Um, they, they require a lot more work. Like I'm just going to do the stuff that's really easy pick up that easy money and um, use the rest of my time somewhere else. And so that might be what it ends up with Amazon is if I try to scale and the headaches multiply and compound, mm. just scale it back to the minimum time and to take that easy money, you know, your best ASINs, your the easiest ones to prep, the easiest, the lowest return ones, whatever it is. You know what I mean? Yep. A hundred percent. Yeah, do you work six hours a week now on it? Is that what is that what your average is? I mean, this month. Yeah, yeah. Well, not not like Q4. Yeah, an average. What do you think you're putting into it per week? I'd have to run it. I mean, Q4 was a lot of time. I mean, that was, yeah. like, you know. But I mean, my other job was flexible, so like Q4, I could um, take time off. When we did the mentorship, like I, I cut down my hours at the other place, so. I think it's hard to really do the average thing because some months you're kind of all in and then some months you're really yeah. It's probably been less than six hours this month. Like, you know, you're just still dealing with the overhang from Q4 and a lot of the stuff I bought Black Friday and like Christmas sales. So like sourcing is lower this month, even though sales will start, probably still be, you know, I mean, a huge drop from December, but on par with other months. Yeah, January is always kind of like the toughest month to kind of stomach uh, because unless you bought like a ton of inventory in like November, December in hopes to like carry it over, you're you're facing like a ton of debt, number one. But number two, I remember feeling like this last year. It's like, oh my God, it's over. It's like, no, nah, it's just like, I remember being so mad, like trying to hit Spengel in January last year, only to find like you're trying to force it. It just makes no sense. Like, I had an amazing Q4. Like, just enjoy that. Buy what makes sense right now. And then kind of, I don't know, February is kind of the same. And then March, it kind of, like, kind of rolls in again. It starts to get good. And then just kind of go from there. Yeah. 
Yeah. What are some of the biggest headaches you have in your business right now? Um, prep's probably the biggest headache. Um, but, um, I mean, it's tax free. So, like, I'm not saving, I wouldn't save that money by sending it. True. So, that's part of why I keep doing it. Um, that's probably the biggest thing. No sourcing bottleneck? Yeah, I guess that. What kind of sourcing tips can you give without giving away any alpha, obviously? But like, kind of your, what made you the change for you to find a lot of stuff? Because I feel like you're pretty good at sourcing now compared to anyone I know, really. I mean, sourcing is tough. I think my my strategy is to to get like as good as you can in your niche, in your brand, in your category, whatever. And if you're going to try something new, you really have to budget a lot of time and effort mm-hmm. and runway to make profits before anything materializes. Because you got to be good at this to make money. Like if I dove into Legos or Squishmallows or something, like I would I would be smoked for like four months. And I might not yeah, even like it because there's some people who do those full time. Like, you know, you kind of got to pick and choose what you're going to do. Like, do I think I could source Legos? Like, probably if I really put the time in. But like, is that an efficient place to be? Like, and so I'm, I'm kind of doing those calculations before I go into anything. Um, but I think when you start, the important thing is to buy all kinds of stuff. Um, they used to talk about in trading, like before you start, you should paper trade, which is like where you write down where mm-hmm. you would buy and sell. and that's. That's actually useless because there's no emotions in it and there's no money on the line. So the best way to actually start trading is to buy two shares sort of, because at least you're in it and you have to watch it and the number goes up a little bit. So it's the same thing with sourcing. And the guy Saul from the buy box, I think he posted it yesterday on Twitter. I'm not stealing his idea because I had this before, but he was like, <laughs> you should just go buy like 50 items who cares to keep a chart and that way you're forced to watch how they sell mm. so i have i mean i would probably look at some good keepers first find the good ones and then buy but just buy stuff and to see like what actually happens because then you can figure out like oh this category was a pain i thought i would get sales but it's dominated by these two guys and now i know that you know but but when you just put a bookmark it and say on it and say, oh, I'll come back to this later and I'll see what would have happened. One, you're not going to do that. Like, yeah, definitely not. It just doesn't happen. And two, you don't really know what would have happened because you. It depends where you would have put your price. And like we said, sometimes things sell or things happen that aren't revealed. So go really wide, and then also like lots of different um, places to buy from, like. And in, in the thing with all this is it's going to be a long way till you make money. Um, and you're going to just be putting in a ton of time. But it's the right way if you want to learn to source. And what a lot of the courses I think sell are these like quick hits like socks, Lula bags, Stanley's. Mm. And like you can get bars really fast, but you won't actually learn how to source. And the minute that supply gets cut off, you're back to zero. And it's what's even worse is now you're six months in and you think you know how to source. Um, yeah. So then, then you probably panic and buy a bunch of bad shit, and then you're like, oh, then you're really screwed. Yeah, and so it's like you can't force it. You have to go really slow. And I'll give a story. Um, because again, whenever I say oh, this is moronic or whatever, like I was that moron. Boy, like, I made all the mistakes in the beginning. Um, and I think Drew, I think I told you some of this one, but it was like after we had started, I found this site, and I found all these uh. Asins. Like it was ridiculous this sale. And I was like, oh my gosh, they were like 100% ROI. And 
Then there were discounted gift cards, 18%. I was like, oh, this is great. Um, and I think you had told me that you, had, you hadn't searched it in a while, but you thought it was a decent site. So I was like, all right, let's, let's go. And what I should have done is just bought three items and see what happened. But instead, I carded up two orders, 1000 bucks each with the gift cards. And um, an hour later, the first one came back. The whole thing was canceled. Not because of a reseller, but because the website doesn't update. Those things were, were sold like a day, days or weeks before. But I didn't know that about that website. So some websites will update their stock faster than others. So now not only don't I get the money back, it goes back on a gift card and I got to source this infuriating website for another thousand bucks worth of stuff. So that's brutal. So now part two is, okay, the other order went through. A uh, week later, I get the items. Um, they were shoes, mostly. Um, they were used. Not lightly used where you could use a magic eraser. Like somebody ran a 10K in the athletic group. And somebody wore the work shoes to work for two weeks. Like completely unusable. So I have to truck this giant box of 14 used shoes back to this place to get a gift card. Because I bought it on a gift card. So there's like saga, you know, this 40% uh, margin or whatever I thought it was going to be. I mean, it's just weeks of just wasted time, wasted money um, because I went too fast. You know, I didn't like stay where I was supposed to be. Yeah, uh, I, use a, yeah. I use a lot of discounted gift cards and that was kind of one thing I've learned. I've definitely been in that spot and it's always just like, I never buy a gift card usually until i've done a regular order on the site and kind of know and then even then i tread like super light like i'll try a hundred bucks so i remember buying like you you waste so much time i remember i forgot what site it was but i was like oh i had like this like crazy calculation like with the gift cards with this with that and like i'm ready to check out i've already bought from the site before and i'm like okay here we go and they're like limit to two gift cards. And I was like, shit. Cause like now the math makes no sense. I've just spent hours like putting this order together. We're so complicated. And now it's like, I'm stuck with these gift cards and the stuff I have doesn't even make sense anymore. Cause the math doesn't work. I was like, Oh God, like so annoying. But yeah, I feel like, so now I always Google before usually like how many gift cards could you use for checkout? weirdly enough some sites are most are like two a lot are max like four or five um there are some that will like let you run a bounce and just keep adding them but for the most part sites could definitely be finicky and i'm guessing like because there's probably a lot of fraud and stuff like that but yeah that's i could totally empathize with you with the gift card saga and it's just like yeah now you're like oh and now you also have like a thousand two thousand dollars of capital that's parked there and now you're like, oh, like, I got to use it. They usually give you new gift cards. So, like, they'll give you new numbers. And that, oh, it's just such a hassle. For some reason, I never got into that. I think I did one gift card I ever had a similar experience. Not even as extreme as you guys, but I'm so, like, lazy, like, work smarter, not harder type of thing. That I was just like, well, I'm never, ever doing that again. Uh, I will, I'll miss out on the 3% extra margin or whatever. Like, there's just no point. The hassle just makes me like, I'm just done for the day. If I had to do all that stuff, I'd just, 
just give up on it. So yeah, I, I don't think a lot of people talk about it. I don't think it's worth three percent. Like I need at least five to like ten to even consider it. Most of mine are like yeah, between five and eight. Some you get up to like fifteen, sixteen. This is on like legit sites. This isn't like some weirdo on Telegram kind of stuff. This is like legit. <laughs> um, but yeah, for three percent, like I don't care. Oh, if you spend a hundred thousand, like I just don't care. It makes the comp- it makes the checkout much more complicated too. Yeah, it kind of goes back to Most the thing about you're, you're talking about your money per time, like how hard are the dollars to get? I like that kind of yeah. yeah. I think a lot of people looked at it that way kind of everything in this business you know how, how much time and how much mental energy you're putting into certain dollars you're getting and you should probably analyze that to see if it's even worth it yeah think, yeah you definitely have to look at that too because if you're going to buy five units you're going to make three dollars on each unit that's fifteen dollars you're going to spend 15 minutes checking it just doesn't make any sense so another thing I, I'm kind of interested, we can kind of go wherever with this, but the whole ecosystem, I think of the the social media and the, the whole influencer thing, I think yeah, you're pretty, you tell me lots of interesting takes on that thing. How do you, how have you seen that kind of evolve and what's your whole thought on kind of all this stuff that's always slung around and your advice on navigating the very treacherous waters of the Amazon influencers? Um, yeah, there's lots of that. I mean, I think, um, a general rule for business is the more someone's selling you, the less you want the product. Like, mm. and that's how I found you was like, you weren't advertising the course. It was like, I messaged you and I was like, I want to talk to you. Like what type of money can I give you for your time? You know what I mean? And the more reluctant the person is, the more valuable their time probably is. And the more you should want to work with them. And so like these guys that are spamming Twitter and like my poor money, Twitter, like it used to be, <laughs> it used to be like this but like they killed it and um it's it's almost like un unreadable um and i think these guys read 48 laws of power and um made a couple thousand dollars selling socks and they're ready to just you know buy a yacht or something it, it doesn't it's like it's it's scammy and, and um there's probably not a lot of info there like you could almost use that as like an indicator like an inverse indicator like the more someone's spamming twitter the less valuable their stuff because if you could make loot, you'd be out there making loot, not selling stuff. So that kind of probably tells you where they are. Where, yeah, where if you're a guy that runs a program, that's the that's the truth as well. I remember when I started do like opening the mentorship for the first time. I didn't know anything about running programs or doing sales. I'll get people on a 15 minute Discord call where I didn't even see their face, and then I wouldn't even try to sell you there. I'd go, yeah, just take as much time as you want, and everybody would buy because they're like, oh, this guy doesn't even. Yeah. And I didn't. I was like, I don't need it. I'm just trying to help people and uh, make extra money. So it works out like that. I think you just hit me up out of nowhere, probably. You're just like, yeah, you seem like you know what you're talking about. <laughs> Can I give you whatever amount of money? And yeah. And yeah, those people are going to put more time into it, too. I mean, I did two calls a week with you. We, we've, I guarantee we talked over 100 hours last year on Zoom. There's so many hours of talk because you knew that I wasn't promoting a bunch of stuff. And it's like, I'll just ask this guy's opinion. I've said that on one of our previous ones, like yeah. instead of looking out for somebody big, if you really want to learn about any industry, just message some guy that's killing it and be like, how much can I pay you to just help me? And he's probably yeah. going to put more time into it because he wants a friend too. Like a, you're building a relationship there. You're not just another cog in the system. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that was our strategy with private label. 
like everyone who was oh like if you bought like this thing like you could have made a thousand dollars or or don't buy this make it yourself like or whatever were all those scammy instagram things like we like went with someone who maybe posted what like 10 times yeah. on instagram but or twitter rather but it seemed like he knew what he's talking about then we set up a call with him and it's like okay like yeah this guy knows what he's talking about um so yeah it's always interesting to kind of see that stuff and then i think it's a hard i don't know angle it's like because you have to sell it but you also have to like I, i feel like you could sell it by just being hey this is how much money i'm making and that's easy to do but then it's like you just see these little signs where it's just like yeah instead of being like this how much a lot of it's like oh this is how much i made last q4 it's like well like, how much do you make this q4 like i don't <laughs> care about last q4 like like what ha- like just kind of like stuff like that but like most people like sometimes my girlfriend will get into these like little things because i'll be like it's so obvious that like you're not going to get a 20 percent off gift card just like it's not obvious to everyone like if you don't know the game or i'm just like oh you can't ship a prime thing a case of prime for seven dollars like i don't know anything about the post office <laughs> like if i went and they said it's seven dollars i went and said it's thirty dollars like I- i'd have no idea but i think it's weird that it's only seven maybe but like i don't know so i, I see both ends of the spectrum i guess yeah, well, that that constant selling and pushing is you're marketing to the lowest common denominator, right? I mean, that's the you're trying to get the person in that honestly has no clue. And I think weren't you the one that told me the story about how people would pay a certain amount to be to learn how to trade at a place you worked, and it was like the saddest thing to see, like these people. Yeah, so tell that because this is man, this is like there's so many things that line up. Like this is a crazy one because this I this happens today. A hundred percent in all these like online business things. Yeah, so um part of the trading game was people wanted to learn how to trade. And they would always not always, but a couple times people would ask me and I'd be like, No. Like it's not worth my time. I'm like, I'll give you three hundred dollars for an hour, four hundred dollars, whatever. And I'm like, No, like I make two thousand dollars off the open. If I have to sit here and explain things to you, I'll probably lose money because I'm gonna be distracted. And like it just makes no sense. And two, like I'm not sure what I like it's just not teachable at the way this is. Like, um, but what would happen is some guy three seats down from me who wasn't making money trading would bring this guy in and have him pay him $300 an hour. And I would confront him and be like, why are you doing that? Like, you're scamming that guy. Like, you don't know how to trade either. And he's like, well, I'm just trying to help him out. I'm like, nah, it's a scam, dude. And so, like, this was part of trading was, like, there would be some guys, you know, maybe they – trade they used to make money and now they don't or maybe they never made money but there was a scheme where you could bring people in and you would take a piece of their commissions in exchange for teaching which is a decent system uh... um i mean it, it never really worked in practice but what it ended up happening we never did that because we were just making too much money trading so it was like this, this side thing well i should correct that we tried it it wasn't as profitable as trading so we abandoned it but um there was one guy in the, he was like the head of the one office and he would bring these people in and they were like retirees. Like the one lady had a cane and I was like, dude, you know, she's not going to make one. Like the whole office, the whole office is like guys <laughs> under the age of 22, like young, hungry, psychopath guys trying to beat the stock market. Like this just doesn't fit. Like what are you doing? And what would happen is 
you know, she'd deposit 10K, she'd lose 5K to the market, she'd pay 5K in commissions, and that guy would take uh, two or three grand of the commissions, and then she'd go. And I'm just like, dude, like, let her go to the casino. They at least give you free drinks. Like, this is just <laughs> here for her. But like, guys would do that. And that, I think that's why the guru thing pisses me off so much is because I used to see it like in real life and it seems predatory to me. And like, you should be able, if you've done the Amazon business, you should be able to talk to somebody and within 20 minutes, know if they're going to make it or not. Or within an hour, know, you know, if there's any chance they could do it. Um, because it is, a lot of it's just work ethic and you can tell that from the questions people ask. Some people just want money and that's fine. Yeah. But like, if you can suss out that they're not going to be able to look at a thousand cube charts and they're going to get tired or bored and just move on, then like, don't take their money, you know? When I did high end coaching, that was one of the things we did. We had like a Zoom call with everyone. And they had to fill out a survey. It's like, how much money do you have to invest in this? And people are like, a thousand, two thousand. We're like, this is not for you. Like, not to say anything bad. It's like, we'll help you out. Like, DM me questions on Instagram or whatever. But like, this is not what you think it is. Like, don't like spend this on inventory. Don't spend this. Give this to us because. I think it's like a weird type of model. Like I'm starting a different kind of business and I'm about to buy a mentorship or stuff like that. But I have a business making money and cash flowing. And if the two, the thousand, two thousand dollars I'm going to spend now, it's not going to cost, like it's not going to put me out. And I realized it's going to get me there faster. But I think the problem with Amazon is you need money to like buy stuff. So if you give someone three or four grand and that's all you have to start the business, well, then you're kind of screwed for inventory purposes. And I, I'm, I hate the whole, oh, like just put it on a card. Like I don't really kind of jive with that or get the 0% APR. I think it's great in, in theory, but if you don't know what you're doing, like, it's the dumbest advice ever and i get oh like use someone else's money you but i don't know i i spoke to someone someone bought a coaching call like a month ago and signed up for one of the programs like one of the popular ones and they opened the cards and all this other stuff like took out an amazon loan to pay off the credit cards because the amazon like I'm just like, oh my god! Like, you just like hear this stuff, and you're just like, Jesus! Like, I, I don't know what they were thinking, but they were obviously sold the dream, um, and got left holding the bag. Dude, I can't even say how many calls I've been on where people say that. I had this one guy call me. I was sitting by the pool, man. I made that a bunch scares of me. I'm like, like, I don't want to take on this person because, like, yeah, oh, I don't want anything to do with this. Yeah, and somebody called me and tell me almost the same story. He's like, man, I'm like 9K in debt or so. What do you think? And I'm like, dude, I think it's time to get a job. <laughs> leave the country, probably. I mean, you're like, what, what are you going to do? You're 19 years old, man. You better call your parents and beg for some money. But yeah, well, I guess the pro the thing with it is, is it borderlines like, you know, it's predatory, but also it's just capitalism. So what what's the line there of, is it predatory or is it just a market being, is it efficient? I don't know. But what, what's kind of your, your take there? You think it's just nature of the game or, or what? Uh, it's a, it's a deep philosophical question. 
That's what we have here. That's what we do here. Um, I mean, I'm selling on Amazon. I was a trader. I'm obviously believing capitalism. Uh, I don't know. It, I guess it comes down to what you can stomach. You know, um, there's clients I've turned away in my other business because I just didn't think it was gonna was gonna work. Um, there's some I've taken where I wasn't sure it was gonna work. I, it kind of depends on the situation. Like I can't say it's it's right or wrong. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I think that's what you have to look at at the end of the day. Like, there is one call we did, and this guy was like, I just called American Express. They gave me 10 grand. Like, this is my last 10 grand. And this guy was in, he had like 60 grand worth of bad inventory, was like refusing to sell it. And he's like, I know you guys could like turn it around for me. And I was like, no. He cannot. Like, no. Like, and it's like, come on, like, this is my last 10 I'm like, I'm not going to take, like, no, like, just no. And it, you just got to look. It's like, this guy's not going to listen to what we're saying, number one. Number two, he just had VAs. He bought, he had, like, four VAs. And he would just buy whatever they sent him. Like, he wouldn't look at the keeper chart. He wouldn't do anything. I'm just like, and he's like, uh, I don't want to do your, we were doing, like, a boot camp. It was, like, eight weeks. I don't need the boot camp. Like I'm more advanced. Like I need one on one. I was like, bro, like you not even qualify for the boot camp. Like you need to go back to like YouTube and get some training because like you you like I don't even know what level you're on. But I couldn't just like stomach that to be like, oh, like his last ten grand. Like just no, yeah. no. Yeah, and I guess the thing is, some people will stomach it. So that's yeah, like where, where it plays a part. It's like. I guess you are missing out, but to me, I feel like it's all not that I'm believing in some karmic debt type of stuff to a large extent, but I do think that it all comes in ebbs and flows. And I think that you probably will be repaid for, you know, the things you do wrong like that largely, I guess that's the philosophical answer in my opinion, but you know, it just depends. Maybe, maybe you never get punished. I don't know. I guess it's, it's too, like, could you run a casino? Like, could you be on that other end of that where you're taking people's money? Like, and once, I don't know, casinos are kind of depressing places to me. Like, it, it seems predatory in a lot of ways. And I don't think I can do that. Um, and, the, and, like, when someone's coming into Amazon, you know they're potentially blowing a, a ton of money on inventory. Like, this could cripple them financially, and they're putting it on credit cards. Like, it seems too much like that. You know what I mean? Whereas, like, yeah. if you're doing, like, personal training or life coaching or, like, any other thing, like, even if you don't think it's going to work, it might work. And like, they're not going to be worse off, you know? But yeah, it's you... their time. They're investing their time to try to get better or think differently. It's not like, oh, you give me five, you go spend 20. I hope your 20 turns into 30, <laughs> like yeah. kind of thing. And then like, if it doesn't, like you're kind of on the hook. I always like explain to people too, like Amazon, I almost... I had this. I don't know. It just like came to me, but I always, almost think of it as like a poker game. Like you put all these chips down, like the cards of the aces. You see, you look at the board, you figure out what you're like gonna put on each one, and then sometimes you're right, sometimes you're wrong, and then God forbid something happens, like the casinos just be like, "Thank you very much. Like you're suspended. Like submit your documents, and maybe we'll give you these chips back." And then you're just kind of like. Ooh, and then you're done or hopefully you get some chips back or whatever but being out the game 
with the not having invoice and all this other stuff it just got like real murky for me um yeah the yeah. tough part too as a person that does that stuff because i've I've stopped doing it now and i like it's funny because it's like full circle i've had so many people ask me well what what does rick do like what what does he do and i go all the shit i tell him to all the time like that that's like what he does but it's not like results are typical for everybody like that's what i try to tell people too it's like he is very smart and he puts in the hours where he needs to put it in. He's running other businesses. So it's like normal, but some people I usually, I sometimes think all oh, this person's going to kill it. And then it's just like, what just happened? You, you just like imploded, but that's just the nature of it. And sometimes is it right or wrong to take that type of person on? You know, it's kind of impossible to really know. Yeah. I think you could tell a lot about a person too, when you first talk to them or they're like, when you first talk to some people, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong about that, but they're like, what about tactical arbitrage? Like, what about leads list? It's like, okay, like, this person is, like, really searching for, like, shortcuts before, like, knowing the basics. Like, this probably isn't going to work out. But, like, yeah, it's like, what is Rick doing? Like, well, he's sourcing every day. He's sending stuff to Amazon regularly. Uh, mastered a couple sites. And everyone's like, oh, what about, like, all that tricky sourcing stuff? You're like, no like i guess there's some of that like not really it's just kind of doing the basics every day yep. i think people want to put their own personal spin on things that it takes the mm. humility to just be like i know nothing i i'm a moron at this like tell me everything you know and i'll do it all and then i'll filter the stuff that i like best you know like people want to come with some knowledge and some of their own stuff and i think on a lot of this happens in my other business too. A lot of times you just need to kind of listen and do exactly what the person says because um, they've got the method and you're paying them to tell you the method. So, but yeah, some people, I don't know. It's a yeah, but that's a huge, huge, that's a very good point. But putting, I think it's always, it's hard not to put your own personal because you might see something you're like, well, I bet he doesn't see this, but it's like, it's not about individual things. It's like the overall thing that you're trying to learn here. Just follow what the person says. As long as they're not scamming you, they're probably right. And maybe it takes longer, maybe it takes shorter, whatever it is, but just follow the follow the plan. That's what I try to do too when I pay for stuff. Like just go in and just listen to everything, do exactly what they say. I'll recheck in three months. If it's wrong, then I'll try after that. But yeah. Yeah. Well, I agree. Any big any other big questions? And I've been here for like an hour fifteen. You got anything, John? I don't think so. Did you write some lightning round stuff down? <laughs> I did. Did you? Okay, sweet. Yeah, yeah. I got some interesting. Yeah. Okay. Um, number one, what's the best energy drink for an Amazon seller? So that means you're big on energy drinks. I've recommended you the Gorilla Vod. So what's the top energy drink for an Amazon seller? Yeah, not a Celsius guy, huh? No, no. Now the gorilla mines are good. Oh people don't people don't know about energy drinks. You buy a monster, you buy a Celsius. There's caffeine in it. Stuff like gorilla mine and Ghost, they have things like Alpha GPC and these different things, and they're actually good for your brain. For like really, it's is yes. there caffeine in it or no? Yeah, a lot of caffeine too. Two hundred okay. milligrams, but yeah, now, that's another thing. I think that the market knowledge of that kind of stuff is pretty low. But yeah, a Red Bull and a Monster are way different than other energy drinks. Whatever. Uh, what's your number one tip for a beginner starting to sell on Amazon? Um, definitely go wide, try lots of stuff, try to find somebody um, who seems honest to help you pay them for coaching and go slow. Don't tell your spouse or family you're going to make a million dollars next month. Like it's going to take time. The runway is longer than any 
guru is going to tell you. So plan out your finances accordingly so that you don't have to tank your own products and that you can wait for the profits to come. And how long does Amazon have left to where it's worth it for the average person? <laughs> that one might be hard to answer, but you can try to give a rough one. Or or like what you think it would take for you know things to change. Uh, so this is just a guess, but I don't know, two to three years at the same level of profitability with declining profitability. So in four or five years from now, maybe people will be happy with five to 7% net margins. I feel like that's where it could settle, but that's a guess. Good stuff. Cool. What's the most you've lost on a single ace and what'd you learn from it? Probably a couple hundred bucks. And it was probably don't sell that brand of, of sneaker. <laughs> What's the most you made on ASIN? Probably like 15 grand. Well, across, wow. sizes, across sizes of the business. So, yeah. Yeah, you told me about that one recently. Yeah, that's insane. Wow. Um, and then the last one. Um, what are your thoughts on replens? Do you replen or you just keep buying new stuff? Yeah, I think refunds are big, are super important. Because if, if you think about how long it takes you to find an item, if you only sell it once, your dollars per hour is kind of low. But if you can keep selling it, like it only took you one time to source it and now you're selling it for a super long time, like that's like that's a real maximization of like your time. So, yeah. Yeah, and then a follow-up on that. How do you, how do you go about replanning? Because I hear a lot of people, they have, their ideas, like what well, maybe you buy five, then you buy 10, then maybe you buy 20. And then sometimes the market falls out. So kind of how do you manage that risk of going all in versus, or you just kind of constantly just buy 20 until it kind of fizzles out? Uh, I would base it on like how much I'm selling. Okay. So like if I'm selling 20 a month, then I'll keep buying 20. But if that dwindles to 15 or if the profit goes down then i'm gonna buy fewer as well Smart. so basing it on that i like that answer most people would be like well about 20 and then i'll buy 50 and then 200 and by the time <laughs> the 200 check in it's like bottomed out but i always say that like if you whatever you sold this like in a week multiply it by four to six and then just buy that many because that's one month or a month and a half if you don't know how many weeks are in a month. It's like very simple, but people try to make it very complex. That's like always how I've dealt with it. If I sell five in one week, okay, I'm gonna buy twenty to thirty. That's fine. But yeah, and I think that was so valuable as an Amazon. Yeah. That's the first time we've really talked about Amazon a lot in like for the yeah, whole podcast. Sure. But man, people listen to that; they're gonna get some gems out of that. Uh, do you have any parting words for the people? Uh, yeah, go to Drew's Twitter, sign up for Arbops through his link there. That that should be the big thing to start with they have i want to say dozens or hundreds of hours of calls like listen to all those in the car at the gym listen to them twice like you want to listen to people who are knowing what they're talking about um and yeah and if your company pays your health insurance keep your job one final thing too i think there's a few things people can learn from how kind of quickly you did reach success in this business and kind of exploded up is one, we would do calls and you would rewatch them 
like over and over. And eventually it came to the point where I would delete everybody else's calls and just keep yours saved in Zoom because I knew you would end up rewatching them. And you would come back and talk about the previous call or you would talk about something that went on in a YouTube video or was said. Ingraining yourself in all that knowledge and like rewatching stuff, I feel like that's obvious, but it's not at all because you're probably one of the only people I've ever seen actually do that. So rewatching stuff and trying to really break down where things are at, I think that's like vastly important. And just like not trying to go too crazy on your own spin on stuff. And just if you if you're paying for somebody's stuff, listen to them. So I think those I, are one last thing I have is I like kind of how you value your time. You're like, okay, um, if I were to double this business. Uh, I don't know if it's worth the extra profit, like based on how much time, like, do I really want to spend 10 hours a week emailing the prep center saying, Hey, like targets of this was delivered, but you don't have it or this or that. And like, I think a lot of people would just see a bigger orange bar and be like, Oh, the business is doing better. But it's like, well, how much time did you spend? Like my trainer recently said to me, he was just like, well, if you PR and it usually took you an hour to do the workout and then you, do a PR and it took you an hour and a half. He's like, you didn't PR because you took an extra half hour of like rest or whatever else you're doing. And it just, I never thought of it like that. He's like, so you got to keep it compact and try to PR in that hour. Don't extend the time because then you're just not working as efficiently. And I was like, I never really thought about that way. For sure. Yeah. Makes sense. I have nothing to plug for Rick. He is a uh, he relates anonymous, to me. Anonymous. anonymous ghost. He just comes, drops gyms for the people, and then leaves. <laughs> but that'd be all. Subscribe, like, follow. We're on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You can listen there as well. But peace. Peace. Thank Thanks, you. Rick. Yep.